welcome to One It's at Dawn, the podcast that pits Jane Austen against all three Bronte sisters. I am your host, Hannah Chapman, Team Austen. And I am your host, Lauren Burke, Team Bronte. And this week is the official, final, like actual goodbye, farewell episode. And it is, sadly, a Bronte episode. I can only apologise. Oh, you're not sad because you just had a wonderful time in Haworth, didn't you? I missed you loved Jane. it. It was. You had a great time. Very wet. It was wet. I felt like I really understand why everyone dies of getting wet in books. Yeah. You know, you read it and you're like, you ain't dying from that. I nearly did. And then they just, they cough. (laughs) Yeah. And then it's from the wet. It's from the damp. It's from the damp. Yeah. But we had that lovely little cottage and you just would, you would light candles every night and make dinner. It was so charming. Everything on fire. I was throwing everything on the fire. <laughs> Candles were lit. Just, you couldn't stop me. It was great. You had a great time in Bronte I country. Time. I love Bronte country. It's wonderful. Um, guys, we have some great episodes uh, coming for you in season three. But um, right now we're still in season two. And, and it's like, it won't die. It won't three. die. It, it won't just die. keeps, it just keeps coming back from the grave. Um, so this episode, our Bronte season finale, what we're going to do is just going to have a little, little mismatch of, uh, Bronte interviews with some Bronte experts. That'll be fun. Be good times. Yeah. It's like the forgotten toys, but with bits of interview. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so now first up, we've got an interview with Karen Kenyon. Now, Karen is the author of The Bronte Family, Passionate Literary Geniuses, which is published by Endeavor Media. She lives in sunny San Diego, California, which is just like the opposite of Haworth, basically. (laughs) It's like perfect, beautiful weather all the time. I thought you were going to do like a bit of a Roman Mars, like beautiful downtown Oakland, California. You know what I mean? You all know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Radiotopia. I see you. I'm just too jet lagged to do that today. My head's not in it, guys. <laughs> well, um, Karen, lovely Karen. Um, she lectures about the Brontes quite often out in California. And um, I highly recommend checking out her book, you guys. Here is our interview. I just really became so interested because I... Well, my husband died at a young age, and after that, I started taking my, our son on a nice trip for a few summers, and we went to England a couple of times, and and one time we visited Charles Dickens' house, and another time went to John Keats' house, and mm-hmm. so on another trip, I just thought, you know, I love, because I was already writing, that I love visiting these homes of writers, and so I I guess I just, I don't know exactly how I chose them. I think because they, they seemed so interesting and there were three of them. And I thought it'd be so great to go to the Bronte home. And when I went there, that's when I just kind of fell for their whole story and just couldn't let go of them. <laughs> now, what actually inspired you to write the book? Well, again, because I, I, I just felt so extremely interested in them and like they had just kind of entered my life and I just mm-hmm. I wasn't through reading about them really so I want and I because I'm a writer I like to you know and I've done a lot of stories <clears throat> excuse me from various trips I, so 
but when I did those two articles, I didn't feel like I was finished with them, and yeah. I wanted to know more and write more. And you know, I'm not a broad scholar as such or anything, so I, I I didn't have access to new information or anything like that. So I went to the UCSD library at the University of California San Diego Library here and just read. I think every biography they had, and they have a really extensive collection. And and then I was in touch with the parsonage because I I somehow or other ended up in touch with Anne Dinsdale, who mm-hmm. then became the curator for a while. But she was the librarian when I was doing the book, and I would I would write her or email her and you know find out what else was new or ask her her opinion on. Well, things like what color were Charlotte's eyes? Because I, right. well, you know, as you know, they're sometimes they're, sometimes they're described as green, or sometimes they're light brown or mm-hmm. blue, I guess. But I mean, everybody agreed that they were beautiful and kind of unusual, striking eyes. But there was mm-hmm. no definitive color. And then she said that that's right. That even in their studies, you know, there, there's no definitive color. So she must have had kind of these sort of chameleon-like eyes. But it was just so great to be able to be in touch with someone like her to verify and find out, you know, some details. So you went to the parsonage sort of like the first time, not really, you know, deep in with the Brontes, basically, right. not really like a true Bronte like fan just yet or writer. But then, you know, you went back and you did the research and you worked on the articles in the book. Was there, you know, did your perception change of them? Were there any things that that were like surprising for you to learn? Um, I think looking at the artifacts that were there, you know, and I at the time I was I sure they changed the displays and all, but I remember there was a a baby bonnet that someone in the neighbor in the village had given Charlotte and you know, that was kind of touching then when I realized what had happened to her and because, you know, for as you know, so many years they all thought everyone thought she had died of tuberculosis and then of course she did mm-hmm. die well, who knows? She may have had the beginning of it, I don't know, but I mean she did die of that extreme morning sickness, which is the same thing as Princess Kate there in England has suffered from. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, just, and seeing Emily's comb that supposedly she dropped in the, accidentally in the fire on her death day, she evidently, she was so um, courageous and kind of strong-willed that she came downstairs even on the day that she died and she was on the couch there near the fireplace and supposedly she combed her hair and the comb dropped in the fire and they had this burnt black comb. So I think seeing those things, um, it made it seem even more personal. It just mm-hmm. did seem very personal. That's the best way I can describe it. I, for me anyway, I, um, there was a cat too that was, that was sitting out in front. And so I, I imagined he's still, that's a cat that knows they're out there somewhere. <laughs> the cat's waiting mm-hmm. for them to come home. We're not far from the Huntington Library, which is near Pasadena, you know, being here in San Diego. And I, until I started working on the book, I had no idea, but Mr. Huntington collected all kinds of things and besides artworks and 
various objects. He 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 has all he had collected all kinds of letters. He had, well, they still have them up there. About 130 letters by Charlotte, and so oh, wow. I I gained permission finally to be able to read through them, and um, but I had to go through a lot because even though I had a book contract and I was teaching at a junior college and. But they wouldn't allow. They said you have to have a PhD to to research at our library. And oh no! Yeah, and I I mean I have a master's and I do teach and I did have the contract for the book, so you know. But they they wouldn't let me do it. And then I complained to some of my friends, and they said, "Well, you wrote them back, didn't you?" And said, you know, something else to try to change their mind and. I wasn't even thinking of that, but I did. And then, then they sent me another letter, and they said, well, if you can find three PhDs to recommend you, we will let you come what? in and do your... Yes, and so because of teaching at the junior college, I, I knew a lot of... And I mean, I have friends who have PhDs, but so one of the people who wrote me a letter had a PhD in real estate, and that got me in. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Isn't that funny? In real estate, too. That's crazy. <laughs> As a former librarian, I'm also shocked, too. Like... Well, That's appalling. That, you know that I was shocked too because I thought I I think I can sh- I mean I'm showing that I'm a serious researcher. But but right. the thing that was so wonderful is that when I finally was accepted and went up there, and then you know you do sit down and talk to somebody for a few minutes and they take your picture, and mm-hmm. uh, then they have you go in this room where they're going to bring up the letters. They actually brought the the, the actual letters to me at the table in a little box. They didn't even give me paper, uh, white gloves. Really? Yeah, and so I actually touched Charlotte's letters. I'm going to try to be really careful, but now mm-hmm. um, a summer or two ago, I went back up because I wanted to look into something else and read some of Charlotte's letters again, and at that point, now they have everything digitized. So sure. I understand that, but I'm so glad that I got to actually, I feel like I have some of her DNA on my fingers. (laughs) (laughs) Was there a letter in particular that, was there something that you were looking for in particular, or was there just, you know, a general feeling for Charlotte? Yeah, it was just a general feeling. I I can't even remember the exact issue, but I I just knew I had not read through all of them, and I, you know, I was still, I I did start, I need to get back to it, but I was, I was starting another book, um, kind of more of a historical fiction about just the last part of Charlotte's life from mm-hmm. her encounter and marriage then to Arthur to her day, death. And I just feel like it's such a dramatic time and I feel like it could be, it should be an opera. I mean, I feel like it's such an amazing, mm-hmm. passionate, painful era. Um, so I guess that was kind of part of my, you know, reason for wanting to go and, kind of do more work but I need to get back to that but I, you know life takes over and then you get busy with other things but I'm oh, still, sure. so my plan is to eventually just write a, um, a historical fiction book and then I just think that's just a story that that needs to be told and it's so it's just it's so dramatic and we are back. Now, let's very quickly talk about musicals because, Hannah, you saw what sounded like a good musical the other night. And I just want you to tell us a little bit about it. Oh, it was like wildly good. I didn't, I wasn't really 
I didn't know what to expect. So my friend Anna Kay, which is very similar sounding to Hannah Kay, mm-hmm. uh, is studying theatre and a group of us were like, oh, we'll go and like support the show. And then uh, when my friend Pierre was like, oh, it's about Mrs. Beaton. I was like, oh, I have a cookbook by Mrs. Beaton, but I have a cookbook by B. Nilsson. <laughs> so I was just the whole time just really confused. And then I kind of like didn't do any real research after that. I was like, I'm not, I don't know what this is. I'll just go. Um, mm-hmm. And it turns out that there were crinolines it was a musical. It yes. was about women in publishing and like what? managing. Yeah, it's all about Isabella Beaton, like really like supporting her husband's publishing business, mm-hmm. writing this best-selling book to support her family. And at the same time, slowly dying of syphilis and losing children because her grotty husband gave her syphilis and and oh, then great. there's this big twist ending. Turns she dies, and then Mrs. Beaton turns into another person. And oh my goodness, more than oh. I could expect. That was like a weird Brexit joke. And then some person <laughs> behind me, they were like, "Who needs Europe?" And this person started clapping, and I was like, "I guess oh, you wow. don't think we need Europe. This this is weird." <laughs> <laughs> and like a yeah, and like one of the songs was from the point of view of um, Sam Beaton the husband that sleeps with a prostitute and allegedly gives her syphilis and kills her. Wow. And there's this whole song about him, like, going, like, really feeling the need to go and see a prostitute and, like, scratch that itch. Wow. I hated that song. But <laughs> the rest of it, great. A really good song about writing lists. Really good songs about how um, women share knowledge, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, like, just what something as simple as having a book can like mean for people mm-hmm. that and like no, like women are just expected to like know how to do all of these things and they're not prepared for it and it, there was a lot a lot a lot about um being accomplished and then that not translating into how to run a household so then you're just oh. stuck so kind of like Meg's story and Little Women like that first year mm-hmm. and they're just going and then Mrs Beaton comes along with this book and suddenly it's like well this is what you can do like this is how you can make a pie and this is the best way to iron. And then because they're not constantly worrying about all of that and they're not stressing about how to feed their families, they can just focus on like different things. That sounds great. I also need that book. I feel like I need that in my life. I mean, the only soundtrack I sort of listen to on repeat from a musical is the original London cast of Les Mis, hashtag Roger Allen feels. Um, Mm. But I will say justice for Russell. That's what I say. <laughs> I feel like, you know, Hamilton has like inspired a sort of new wave of just like ambitious musicals. I say this as a theater person, but not a person that's in a musical. So I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I feel like this is true. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't like the Miss, Mrs. Beaton says is a good musical. I wouldn't necessarily say it's like ambitious. Though, okay. that would be the only thing I don't think it's an ambitious it's like enjoyable but it's not breaking anything it's not just like, like busting down the walls it's not busting down the walls of musical theatre but the story it's telling I think is like is a good story right so in terms of musicals yeah. it's not doing anything new but you know women I like writing a, books yeah like a women like a woman focused 
yeah. you know, musical. I think that's like, so this was interesting. The other day I read that A History of Women and 100 Objects, the book, like those rights have been purchased to be turned into a musical. I hope one of the objects is tripe. It might be. That we'll find be out. Really good. <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> and then when we were in Manchester, everyone was talking about um, Six, mm-hmm. which was uh, a musical all about the uh, the wives of Henry VIII. Oh. So everyone was saying like, yeah, that 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 was also a Bonnets musical. And um, there's one more musical that I didn't get to see. Wasted, a Bronte musical. And that was definitely a Bonnets musical. But because it was about the Brontes. Because it was about the Brontes. And Where's everyone my loved it. musical? What the hell? What I, the hell? I was going to say, I what, the heck? what the hell? I think there's a few. I think there's a few, right? No, there's none. There's none. None. I think there's been a couple. Opera. I think there's probably loads, aren't there? Yeah, I think I actually saw one a few years ago. Just. <laughs> It was that memorable. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm really sad that I didn't get to see Wasted. And uh, I know you guys all said it was great. So the music was great. I'm hoping that it will be revived in some some manner. Someone will do some mouth to mouth and bring that back into the West End for me. Um, How thankfully, big's the cast? That's a lot of mouth to mouth. I know, right? I think just four people. Just, oh, uh, just the famous Bronte siblings. Yeah, it's not. Big lungs. Just big lungs. Um, but yeah, thankfully, we've got Siobhan Athwal, who was uh, in the show on our show today. Uh, so Siobhan Athwal is a London actress. She just finished her role as Emily Bronte in Wasted and was formerly in the Spice Girls musical in the West End. I literally said the Spice Girls movie because when am I oh, that would have been amazing. the Spice Girls movie? Uh Love that film. Uh, really a great classic. film. Iconic. Great film. But not Richard if she wasn't in e. that. Grant. Uh. She wasn't in that. She was in the Spice Girls musical on the West End, which is equally as iconic, except I have not seen it. I will say this. I'm just going to speak for Siobhan. She loved that movie as well. She did. She really did. Good. Good. Because I feel like that's the source material. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if you haven't seen the Spice movie, the Spice Girls movie, Whatever it's called, you should go spice up your life right now. Right now. Or just listen to this interview. You've kind of gone on this journey with Emily. Can you tell us sort of like where you started with Emily at the very beginning? Like just, you know, around casting and then up till now? So this piece, I'm actually um, reviving the role of Emily Bronte uh, because I originated the role about two years ago at the West Yorkshire Playhouse. I remember going into the audition and it was it was one of them moments where timing was everything because I was at a stage in my life where I was fed up of trying to fit into other people's boxes um, and I thought, do you know what, I just need to look at myself, I need to celebrate myself and for this, for this moment in time, amplify my truth, especially for other misfits to do the same and, and realise they have a voice. Um, whether or not it's an audition, whether or not it's everyday life, or whether or not it's in a um, in a performance, and so I decided to take on that principle, that mantra, if you will, uh, in this audition. It turned out great because everything I was doing, I was in the moment. I was embracing Emily, depicting what I got from the songs and the material they gave me, and Adam Lenson, the director, loved it. In fact, Chris. 
Ash and Carl Miller, uh, they, they, the whole creative team loved it. And I thought, this is such a fitting piece that the glove fits the hand. It's, it's a marriage. This is working. And so from then on, my knowledge of Emily grew because at the start, I wasn't quite sure. Um, of, I, I didn't know many of her works or even I'd heard of Wuthering Heights, but I didn't know of her. And so that's why when I got given the material, I thought I, I won't cram in all the research I can because it's not fair. I thought this because I honestly I didn't know at the time where this piece was going to go exactly. Mm-hmm. So I thought, let's just look at the piece. Let's reflect that. Let's respect it and see what happens. And so and it worked. And then from the first step after that, when I was I began to do more research into Emily. And so I I read Wuthering Heights and I was I was just I, I, I got it at first I was like mm, okay and then I, I grew into it because the, okay I can honestly say that I'm a fan of that book now I mean I mm-hmm. I found it explored the complexity of humanity you know it's right. it's curious about the extremities of our human emotions our relationships and what what extremes we will go to and I definitely found it was fearless in its delivery of that, of its commentary yeah. of society. And from that, I thought, you know, it's it's no wonder people don't trust each other. And, and dare I say, Emily didn't trust people and she found herself more akin with Mother Nature and animals because I do myself, you know, there, there's a safety there that you you feel that you're getting and therefore you can reciprocate it you can give back whereas humanity you there's manipulation there's deception you don't always know where you stand and it can be quite a dangerous place mm-hmm. yeah you're absolutely right it's funny i was just doing an interview with um the sisters room so if you're interested in continuing your research about, about emily i highly recommend the sisters room blog they are um Two Italian gals who are English teachers and huge Bronte fans, and they've written about the Brontes quite a bit. Um, But Emily is their favorite. And we were just having this, you know, discussion about Emily and they were putting it so beautifully. Like they were like, yeah, I mean, the thing about Wuthering Heights is it's a very challenging, dark book, but we love that she's not afraid to put that darkness out there, especially in a time where. Women were not supposed to, you know, they're not supposed to write, but if they are writing, they should be writing about polite yeah, absolutely. society. She broke the rules. And why were the rules, uh, why were they in place anyway? And why, why are you ashamed? Well, why are people ashamed or scared to comment on something that exists? Right. Right. It's fearless. I mean, she went far above and beyond what even like, you know, dudes were doing at the time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a lot of people say they were ahead of their time. And I just think it's because they didn't bow down to society. And and it's what's brilliant about this is that we have to remember, or we should remember, that these were real people. And it, it blows my mind that these people, the, the Brontes, actually existed. Look what they did. So it's really important to pay tribute to them, hopefully in a way that they would they would like but in a way that i find respectful to to try and to honor them because they are incredible and i want to do the best that i can for for what they've done for generations and future generations to come how they've inspired people um is 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 a legacy it's that i want to 
pay homage to. Now, in this play, you've also got Charlotte and Anne, of course, and then yes. also Branwell. Sometimes yes. they exclude Branwell from the plays. Sometimes he's included. Do you know what? Like, I, I'm so glad that Branwell existed because, <laughs> especially in our piece, we need Branwell. He's played by Matthew um, Jacobs Morgan, and he is he's wonderful. He's definitely Switzerland, as he calls himself, between us. And he's the nice balance between us. He keeps us... We need him. I love Branwell. And and it's with all siblings. We fight, we love, we hate, we share our happiness. Um, but it's that that is at our core, that we're a tight family unit. There's only four of us. We have no other choice but to support each other. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, what is... Yeah, what is the dynamic like between you guys in real life and then on in the show as well? Yeah. Like, how are you guys... <laughs> guys had gotten an up to any like cash shenanigans or anything like that oh they're the, they're the secret jokes that we're having that's what keeps the fire alive i mean we're I'm sure we're very much a great group and what's great with this is that naturally you start to sort of fall into your characters and you start to become your characters because we're, we're playing we're, we're performing in 24 7 essentially um, right but it works between us uh charlotte she is <laughs> She's the older sister. She's the sometimes nagging. She's the matron. She's in control, and then she messes up, and it's like she's she's the big older sister, and it's annoying at times. But then there's heart there. You can always go to her. And then Anne is the quiet one. Uh, when I want to get away from Charlotte, I'll go and play with Anne uh, because we have a lot of fun. We have things in common. And then she has her own little. Um, she's quite religious in, in our piece, so it's a bit like, okay, I'll let you have your space. I don't quite follow that as much as you do, but that's that's you. And then at the same time is, um, you know, how I feel about them. They probably feel that way about me. You know, I, they understand that I like to go to the moors to escape, to, mm -hmm. to, to breathe. Um, they know how I am. Actually, what I love is that within all our, um, our love, the there is so much acceptance of our faults with one another. We both understand, we all understand how we all are and we all give each other space and yet we all come together at the end when, when it's needed. Um, and I think that's, that is what makes a family. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, you said that you may have had a visitation. Oh my goodness, Lauren. <laughs> Oh my goodness me! Yes, <laughs> and I am not. I I don't lie, and this just affirms everything. I'm just like you can't <laughs> see it, but I am. I'm smiling. I'm. Oh god. Okay, so so the stage is there, and we come in for our daily warm up, and. Um, continue our routines to getting ready to prepare for the show and then one day I came in and uh, we were on the stage doing our vocal warm-ups and I looked down and I was, I was like guys um first does anyone else what has anyone what is this I took a closer look and there so this the stage is a square and each character there's four of us has a position on the stage on the square that we sit in. That's our space. 
So when I was just standing around my area, which is on one of the corners, the left corner, I decided to look down and I found an E. The letter E had heavily been etched into the stage, the, the mm-hmm. wooden carvings. Like, I, I was like, what? Okay, so maybe, okay, there's an E here. I decided to look at every other corner. No other initial had been etched but E, but mine. And I was like, guys, I honestly think Emily Bronte has paid a visit. She knows where I'm sitting. She knows that I'm playing her. She's decided <laughs> to say hello. And I took that as a positive thing. I was oh, like, good. thank you. Yes, thank you, Emily. I'm doing, a, I'm doing a great job. I hope you're enjoying it. Thank you for coming to say hello. And I, I love that. I took a photo of it and everything. It's, it's special. I know, that picture is great. I can't believe was... it. Like <laughs> I said, we were all saying, who's done this? What's going on? But no one... No one admitted to it. No one actually knew anything. Because when we all come, when we were thinking about it, we were like, well, no one is ever in here on their own. Everyone mm-hmm. is always in the space because they've got many different things, the cast and crew, to, to adhere to. And uh, and I don't carry any sharp tools, so I couldn't have done it during the show. There is right. no way that any of us could have done it because of our routines within the day. It was so, it's, well, yeah. Oh gosh! Oh, we did have a but, power cut actually. I think oh it, really? It may have been on the same day or or a couple of days after we found the uh, the discovery. We were in the middle of doing the show at the beginning, and then we were doing um, one of the opening numbers, and suddenly the lights just went off. Uh, we were like, oh. uh, we were performing in darkness, which you know it looks quite good given the the style of the piece. But then right. after a while, we were like, actually no, we can't do the show in pitch black. Darkness. Right. So we oh, had no. to stop. But yeah, maybe maybe they're all coming. Maybe that was Blanwell being mischievous. And we are back. We are indeed. And we have one more interview for you guys. Can you handle it? No. You can't handle it, Hannah. You need to go home. We can pause it. I'll come back. It's like too much Bronte goodness for you. So for our last interview, we have the lovely Rowan Coleman. Now, she is a best-selling author of novels like The Runaway Wife, The Day We Met, and We Are All Made of Stars. She is also a huge Bronte fan, and her next series will be reimagining the sisters as amateur detectives. So this is like right up my alley. Um, The first book that she will be publishing, I believe it's in November, Um, is The Vanished Bride, and it is a mystery with a literary twist as Coleman imagines the well-known Bronte sisters finding themselves embroiled in the disappearance of a young woman whom they suspect has been murdered by her wealthy husband. Are you close to the parsonage? No, sadly. Uh, I live in Hertfordshire, but I visit... um... I visit about once a month. Oh, wow. Uh, I've been visiting about once a month for the last year because my book, my current work in progress is set. Oh, actually, I delivered it yesterday. Hey! Uh, is set in um, Pondon Hall, which is uh, which was known to the Bronte sisters and is about three miles up the road from the house. Nice. So is that a um, modern day book or is it... Uh, it's all the things. It's uh, It's got um, a 17th century thread, a 19th century thread, and a 21st century thread. Oh, that's fantastic. What else can you tell us about the book, if anything? 
Um, I can't tell you too much, but um, it is uh, the Pundin Hall use was regularly visited by all Bronte sisters um, to use their light to use the library there because they were women. They weren't allowed to enrol in Howarth Library. Um, and so they used to, and as you know, Patrick was really, really keen on them uh, edu being educated and he let them read whatever they wanted to read. So they would go up to the library to read. Um, and particularly Emily would um, sit in the room in, at Pondon Hall um, and read in front of the fire. And it was um, it was in that room where there used to be a box bed, um, like the one in Wuthering Heights, in the Lockwood nightmare scene, and which they've now pretty much proven with an archaeological uh, architectural historian that's what I'm trying to say and um, and they've recreated that box bed and you can go and stay in it actually when you go to Howarth you should stay at Pondon Hall it's amazing um, and um, and so when I first went to stay there I walked into this room and it's 15th century it's built in the 15th century and um, walked into the room looked at the box bed and burst into uh, fits of hysterical laughter. I want to say tears. I, <laughs> I thought you were going to say tears. <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing because I was just, I could not believe that I was there in that place um, where Emily would, would go and read um, and would use and would go and use the library. Um, and for the, for the 500 years up until the end of the 19th century, the Heaton family owned it. And one of the Heatons, um, Robert Heaton, was terribly, hopelessly, had an awful school, kind of teenage crush on Emily. And she really, I mean, obviously, Emily being Emily, was really not into it at all. Um, but he planted a pear tree for her in the back garden mm. um, as a token of his love. And a little stump of it is still there. So, and, oh, most excitingly, um, the window that um, Kathy smashes her hand through in Northering Heights is in this room mm -hmm. and also when you if you go to the parsonage and you see the Emily exhibition there's a picture of a drawing that she did of a window when she was 10 years old mm -hmm. and it's the window at Pondon Hall in this room and uh, if you look very very closely um, you can see the figure of a man punching his way through the glass so I looked at all those things and saw those things and I thought I am writing a book here oh nice <laughs> nice now, can you tell me what your first, you sounds like you're a big Bronte fan. So it sounds like you're team Bronte. Um, yes, I'm afraid so. I do love Jane though, a lot. <laughs> Mostly team Bronte does like Jane. It's just, I find yeah. that team Jane is not as accepting of the Bronte sisters. Typical. <laughs> yes, right. So um, when was your first contact with the Brontes? Um, I was about 10, mm -hmm. which I think is often the case yeah. for, uh, for young Bronte fans. Um, and my mum took me to the parsonage in the summer, so it was really raining. Mm -hmm. and, um, I, and I was really resistant to going because I'd never heard of Bronte sisters. And I thought, oh, dead, dead house, house of dead women, boring. Um, and... <laughs> It was very different from then from how it is now. But on display, they had the miniature books. Okay, yeah. And um, they really caught my imagination because when 
because at that time in my life, I was doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Before, even before I'd been to the Bronte to Parsonage, oh. I was um, making my own little miniature books at home. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that kids um, just do. So when I saw that, it kind of hooked me in and I became really interested in them. Um, and, and I feel like well, the Parsonage is a place with, which is full of atmosphere and full of sort of creative charge, really. And I know that sounds a bit woo, but um, that is how I feel about it. No, I totally it's like, agree. It's like, it's like this incredible creative storm of genius happened there you know, a couple of hundred years ago, and um, and it's still in the air. So I, and even at 10, I think I felt that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my mum bought me a copy of Jane Eyre, mm-hmm. which I didn't really read until I was about 11. And then when I was 11, I was absolutely madly gripped and horrified by Jane's early school um, experiences and then she got to uh, you know to meet Mr Rochester and I was bored rigid by the whole romance <laughs> um, but I read it to the end then I read it as a teen and I was like oh Mr Rochester please sweep me off my feet um, and then I read it again in my 20s as, as a degree student and got a completely different read of it again yes um, and I'm I'm slightly well, I, was, I think in, in my 20s when I was when I first realized what an amazing book it was mm-hmm. um and how brave and bold and revolutionary it was. Um, and that Mr. Rochester's a bit of an ass. Can I say that? Yeah. Um. <laughs> As a writer, I'm just, I'm just curious, like, what it, do you take inspiration from the Brontes? Obviously with your last book or the book you just turned in um, for sure. Yeah. But is there something in particular that you like about their writing style that you try to maybe incorporate or you're thinking about while you're writing? Yeah, definitely. Um, since I, since I think probably most in the last four years, um, or perhaps the last four novels, I've my writing style has changed a bit. I, I've grown up, and I think my books have grown up a bit. Um, and what I'm always trying to do is to um, capture some of that powerful emotion. There's something that happens when you read uh, a Bronte book, and, and actually, I think it's true of all the three of all three sisters. And it's like a sort of a, a explosion of emotion in your in your chest, um, and that is very much something that I would like to be able to do. So I try to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, is there? Um maybe a line or a poem or just like a passage in one of her, like any of their books actually, that you go back to or think about quite a bit? Um, well, the poem that I, and I'm afraid it is gonna be a poem that everybody loves. Uh, it's not gonna be a rarer one, but the poem that mm-hmm. I've been um, looking at um, for my novel is um, no, Ca- no Coward Soul Is Mine. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I really didn't know that much about Emily's poetry before probably last year, I didn't really look at it that much. And I love that poem with, um, because it's, well, first, it, and I only discovered recently, actually, this is how much I have to learn, that it was the last thing that she wrote, um, mm-hmm. which gives it a whole nother level of meaning and depth. And I, I love the first um, stanza because I'm a person who um, is quite introvert 
and gets terribly anxious and um, worries about lots of things all of the time. Um, but, and I love that that first standard. I love the idea that she's like, and in fact, I think she's saying, you know, I'm going to die, but I'm not scared. I'm not scared of death because of my faith in, in God and in, in nature and in the world around me. But of that poem, my favourite, favourite verse is um, the last verse, which is, there is no room for death, no atom that his might could render void, since thou art being and breath, and what thou art may never be destroyed. And I think, God, that woman wanted to stay alive. She wanted mm -hmm. to be alive. She's, she's doing her best to be brave, and she's doing her, doing her best to say, I'm not scared, I'm going to faces like I've faced everything else um, right. and I think and I find it incredibly poignant that quite reminds me too of like Anne's last last letter um, yeah. to Ellen as yeah. well yeah yeah and I think Just that's like, the tragedy yeah. is that you know they they didn't they didn't want to go none of them did <laughs> and right I mean of course nobody wants to die obviously but I think right. in the, I had I had this kind of misconception that they were, and I think that's true perhaps of sort of Victorian um, culture is this sort of idea, particularly with Anne actually, of the sort of almost heavenly, almost angelic mm -hmm. young woman who's ready to take her place in heaven, this sort of spirituality, but that's the opposite of what you get from when you read the accounts of her last days and her last letter and, um, and, and her desperation to get to Scarborough and not being allowed to go. And, um, and it's terribly sad. It's terribly sad. I read yeah. um, through the, the Juliet Barker edited collection of letters mm -hmm. um, yeah. recently and just cried my eyes out. <laughs> it's like, and I couldn't bear it. I couldn't bear the fact that there wasn't, it wasn't going to work out for them. Right. When you, when there's that kind of visceral power in the letters that they've left behind, it makes them so alive, doesn't it? If you could sit down with any one of them and ask them a question, do you have any ideas what that would be? Um, I would like to ask Emily where Rochester comes from, uh, not Rochester, sorry, Heathcliff comes from. Um, okay. The inspiration behind Heathcliff, because I've read lots of really interesting ideas. Mm -hmm. he, might have, he might have been based on Keeper her dog so um I, I i think that's kind of an enigma <laughs> she I sure oh think, yeah i don't think emily was ever in love that i can tell um i don't feel like she was that fussed about it mm -hmm. um that she was much more interested in in her imaginary world and and the and her environment and her animals maybe i don't know what do you think um, I would love to know more about Heathcliff. I'm obsessed with him. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would love to have a conversation with her about um, the way people view Wuthering Heights as well, because, um, you know, I, what we fight against on this podcast so much is people coming at it like a romantic text. And I, I don't view it as a romantic no. text. I think that's a disservice done by the films. Yeah. Um, and what we're going to be talking about in a few weeks, too, is um, we had Judith Pascoe on the show and she just she did this Guggenheim Fellowship and, and like she produced this book. It was all about 
Wuthering Heights in Japan. Yeah. And how popular it is over there. And and one of the, you know, I think it was one of the actors or someone who had adapted it over in Japan said to her, like, oh, it's so sad. Like, you guys only have one version of Wuthering Heights. But here in Japan, we have thousands of different versions. Oh, really? <laughs> and it's the, the way it's been interpreted. So I would I would love to have that discussion with her. Like, I would love to have What were you thinking? <laughs> Interestingly, Julie, uh, Julie, who is uh, the current owner of of Pondon Hall had a Japanese ambassador stay with her a few years ago and um, and he said that the reason that Wuthering Heights is so um, not ambassador it was deputy chief of the UN um, mm. the reason Wuthering Heights is so important to the Japanese people is because it describes emotion and passion and anger in the same way that they under they culturally understand it which mm. I think is really interesting <laughs> yeah, that, it's very interesting. Yeah, because the Japanese Japanese culture is incredibly fascinating. Um, anyway, right, and and because it was cut off from the Western world for so long, it's not like mm-hmm. Emily was influenced by that particularly. Right. So it is it is real. It does show her characteristics, um, which are mysterious. I collect. Um, I collect old editions of all the books. I can't afford first editions, mm-hmm. but I collect old editions. And um, and, I, and I also started to collect Bronte biographies. And there are some mm-hmm. really nutty ones out there. There ones. really are. And 20s and 30s, star signs of the Brontes. Um, oh, I would love to read. Brontes, that's one of my favourites. And one by this lady who was written in the 1930s. Oh, I can't remember her name might have been Lydia something, um, who was convinced that one of Emily's poems was written to uh, Louis Parsonel. Do you know that story? Oh, I don't know that story. So, bless her. She she was one of the first biographers to um, get her hands on Emily's original poetry notebook, which was in the British Library, and mm-hmm. written in very, very tiny letters and annotated by Charlotte. And... Wow. And she went to look at it and she found this this poem which she read as a love poem. And over the top, Charlotte had written, she thought, Louis Parsonel. Mm-hmm. Um, and she um, based the, this discovery, uh, her whole biography are based around this incredible discovery of, uh, of Emily's secret lover. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, when somebody went and looked at it with... Um, with uh, a microscope, it said, oh, what is it? I've forgotten, Love's, oh, Love's Treasure or something. Let me see if I can find mm-hmm. Wait one second. No, it's not going to let me find it right now. But it was basically, she just misread um, Charlotte's annotation. It was, right. it was something like Love is love is past or love is well or something like that Mm -hmm. Um, oh my gosh but that was after it was published um and sadly that's out of print now but i managed to get a copy from india because i read about that in the um in a 1948 biography by somebody else so there are just so many people in a long line for you know hundreds 200 years who have been desperate to know the secrets of these women um especially and make up all sorts of secrets um, and all sorts of theories to try and explain away their work. And I, and I think that's just amazing. It's great, isn't it? 
And we are back again for the final time, I promise. So it is the last episode of 2018 as well as the season. And I've got two questions for you, Hannah. Are you ready for them? I'm so ready. Question one, favorite episode of the season. And this has been a long season, so you might have to think back. Oh, are you kidding me? Yeah. This season has been the entirety of 2018. I know. It's a long Every time. Week. But let's just say someone road is listening trip. for the first time. Which road trip? The Kentucky. Kentucky road trip. Yeah, that's great. I love episode. those singing sailors. That's my favorite. It's pretty good. That's pretty good. So if that's like the one episode that you would have to recommend to people, it's that yeah, one. Yeah, singing sailors. I don't think it's a good introduction to the show, but sure, listen to that one. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good one. Um, for me, this is really hard to choose. Um, I'm just going to like throw out there the friendship of Charlotte and Elizabeth. So mm -hmm. that was like the two part panel episode that we did at Gaskell House last year, which feels like an age ago. A year ago, some would say. OK, I'm asking the next question because I've got the notes in front of me. OK, that's fair. Lauren, you were going to ask me what was the best book I read all year? I didn't read mm -hmm. any books, so I'm asking you. Didn't you didn't read, read any books. I think you read quite a few, but you probably read, read a like, lot for the show. The Shuttle. I was just realized that like, I think the, the last book that I like, I, I've started a lot of books this year, but mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm allowed to admit on the show, but um, with the comic fair that I co-organize and then releasing my anthology and doing the podcast and my full-time job. I am. Um, I can't read anymore, <laughs> so I can only read for the read-alongs and anything that's like reading for pleasure. I do actually fall asleep. Yeah. So the last book that I read that wasn't prescribed reading was mm -hmm. The Secret Radical, and that was last year. And so I've read half of Joanna Russ's How to Suppress Women Writers. I love the first half of that book. I still haven't finished Paula Byrne's book. Um, I guess I really liked The Shuttle. I read that this year that was great <laughs> that was great um i i'm kind of in the same boat as you i'm so tired half the time and like dealing with my daughter it's like really difficult to get a lot of reading done um so i feel like you guys know a lot of the books that i've read this year because i've talked about them on the show but here's one i haven't talked about um that i'm almost done with so i think it counts i read it quite a bit during my um my plane ride the other day, which was like massively delayed, um, was To Bed with Grand Music by Marganita Lasky, who's a really interesting author. And um, I would love to talk about her on the show sometime, maybe in season four, um, but I highly recommend her. You can buy a few of her books at Persephone. And um, this is a really interesting book because it is uh, World War II, which you guys know I love. Love a World War One, World War Two novel. And it's all about sex. It's an interesting perspective on the war and um, on the women who were left at home. So, yeah. We also asked you guys for some book recommendations. And Even boy. Anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you guys did. You guys did. Apparently. Wow, this list is so long. I know. I didn't even... Um, put half of the list down too i'm intimidated by it it's crazy um do you want to just start reading off titles we should uh alternate we should take one each 
Okay, sounds good. So I will start. I will say that Pride by Ibby's Boy, Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik, and Middlemarch by George Eliot appeared multiple times by multiple listeners. So you guys are all feeling these books. And then the rest of them were The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. The Choice by Edith Egger. The Oh, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. I have read that. I read that you, 12 years ago before it was a film. Oh, <laughs> really? You read it that long ago. You said I, you had some interesting thoughts on that the other day, actually, because we were just talking about this one. Yes, because many people believe that uh, Great Britain was not, uh, what's the thing when the baddies come occupied 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 by the germans during the second world war however mm-hmm. channel islands occupied uh, and we don't talk about it and it's terrible and there uh, it was really hard for the yeah these people so yes those were my thoughts on it excellent point <laughs> it is um thoughts. <laughs> it is a good one i read it a while ago and i would like to revisit it someday probably 11 years when i have time i feel like so. realistically i will never reread that book but you know, you should all go ahead and do it. <laughs> I watched the movie. Does that count? I still haven't. No, I haven't seen it. Right, go. Lauren, what's next? Okay. Worlds of Ink and Shadow by Lena Coakley, which is a very interesting imagining of the Brontes as teenagers. My Plain Jane by Cynthia Hand. La Belle Savage. It's probably La Belle Savage. <laughs> La Belle Savage. By, by Philip, Philip Pullman. Pullman. Philippe Pullman. <laughs> Don't say, just don't don't pronounce the letters, it's fine. Oh, yeah, of course, Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine by Gail Honeyman, made the list. That one was on our list last year as well. Um, she's still fine. She's still doing well. So Guys, that's good to hear. Still, she's hanging in there. She's still doing good. Um, the Grey Woman by Elizabeth Gaskell. We Are All Completely Besides Ourselves by Karen Joy Fowler. I have had that one recommended to me quite a, quite a few times, so... I should read it. Um, Sadie Doyle's Trainwreck, which I also hear is great. I've got a scroll. Oh, look. Oh, The Prince and the Dressmaker. I read that one. You, you did read that one. You didn't put who it's by. That was That's by Jen Wang. Yes, yes that's Jen right. Jen Wang. It's by Jen Wang. It's published by First Second. And what I'll say about The Prince and the Dressmaker is this. When you get to the very end of the book, the big reveal is that when Jen Wang initially imagined it, uh, they were all adults. And then she made them children. Um, I'm not entirely sure why she made them children, maybe to sell to young adults. Anyway, Mm. the sketches of the adults, beautiful. And I actually think the story makes a lot more sense. Oh, really? I don't know if it was like as thorough a rewrite as would have been needed. Mm-hmm. Which is something that um, happened a lot in my favorite fantasy series by Tamora Pierce, and that was written about adults and then rewritten to be about children. And there are certain beats where you're like, "Is this a child? How old are these people?" Oh, interesting. So okay. that, yeah, that's my takeaway. It's not a perfect book. I love it, but it wasn't like it wasn't know. wasn't all the way there for you. Um, we should mention, yeah, that's a graphic novel, guys. I'm sure you gathered by our conversation. Uh, yeah, it's graphic novels. A uh, little comic book, which I can um, read. I Oh, I've read loads of comics this year, by the way. I just didn't read, like, big boy books. Sorry. Oh, I just, that's okay. I've read I did too. to pictures. 
<laughs> I've read loads of comics because I was trying to like catch up and then yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Keep switching back and forth. Um, the last one on our list, also a comic, Girl Town by Carolyn Nowak. And I haven't read this one, but I was sitting next to her at a con and I was looking at it and I almost bought it. And then I didn't. That's a terrible story. But I'm interested. That's an awful story. I know. Um, books that I've bought and I haven't read this year. What about those? A Secret Sisterhood, Outsiders, um, that Whit Stillman uh, Love and Friendship book. Oh, mm. loads of books about medieval court and like women's rights in the medieval ages. Um, Wuthering Heights. I took it to Howarth, didn't read it. There we go. I'm a failure. I hope you're all happy. 2019 will be a better year. <laughs> I hope so. Because I'm not doing any anthologies or comic shows. I've quit. So Same oh, here. Pray for me. Um, Secret Sisterhood, yes, that's another book that I have not finished yet. But when we come back next year, we will talk about that one as well as how to suppress women's writing. That is on our agenda, actually. We just both need to read them. <laughs> we do. It's true. We need this break, guys. We need this time. Um, now, while we're on break, what are we going to be doing, Hannah? What's going to be happening? While we're on break, yeah, I'm gonna. I'm just going to be hanging out. Are you going to be reading anything? Maybe like a book by Elizabeth Gaskell. Oh right, I see what. Yeah, I was. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to the pub more regularly <laughs> than I have been. Um, yeah. We will be reading. Wives and Daughters by Elizabeth Gaskell because, my word, you people will not stop hammering on about it. So we're going to do it. We're doing it for you. We're reading it. We're not going to do a weekly breakdown of chapters on the show. There will be discussion threads posted on the Facebook. Those go live on Boxing Day for my break. story. 26th of December for the rest of you. Mm-hmm. So those threads will be opened on Facebook and then you can go and discuss it all on there. And then Lauren and I will take your lovely comments and we'll make one or two episodes about the book to share, to open season three. Is that how True we're opening story. season three? You are correct. You're absolutely I correct. My I believe if I can recall that uh, that PowerPoint slide that I made for our pub quiz, it was I really believe nice. that uh, that first episode will drop on February 8th. And um, yeah, you should be... You should be caught up on Wives and Daughters by then. Or not, you know, because that episode will be around for a while. So just Take your time. read read at your leisure, guys. But um, we will be discussing all kinds of stuff all over social media during our break. We're not taking a break from social media, God knows. And uh, you can chat with us all across the webs. Where? Where, Hannah? Where can they chat with us? Well, you can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at bonnets at dawn. You can email us, bonnets at dawn at gmail.com, and you can join our rowdy, raucous, book-loving Facebook group by searching bonnets at dawn and answering the questions there. And um, that's how you prove that you're not a robot or, oh, a teenager who's been taken over by a yerk, which is a sort of space slug. Hmm. From the animal I didn't know series. That. Yeah. Oh, oh. Yeah. So if you're not a yerk, answer the questions. <laughs> yeah. Good. Good. Strong finish. I no like it. No yerks allowed. See you in 2019. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, 
have a great holiday and a great new year. And we will see you in 2019. I just said that.